Hi, my name is Martin Purnell, and welcome to Off Grid Christianity, a weekly podcast for those who go or don't go to church, and for those that are disillusioned. This podcast series is to encourage via conversation and not necessarily change your mind prior to listening. You can contact us as well by email, ogc at accessradio.biz, business spot B-I-Z. Check out our Facebook page, Off Grid Christianity, and we have our own website, offgridchristianity.co.uk. So please enjoy today's guest, who is the Director of Leadership Training at Moreland's College and a campus-based tutor on the BA and MA courses. He was made a Doctor of Divinity by the Axe Institute in Bengaluru, India, in 2019, and was a columnist for the Western Morning News for 10 years. He is also the author of 15 books, including Postcards from the Edge, Finding God in Hard Places, released in 2015. In July 2022, he attended the Parliamentary Prayer Breakfast. He is an ordained Baptist minister who has led churches in suburban, city centre and international contexts. He was on the leadership team for Spring Harvest for nine years and was director for both the Salt Mine Trust and Evangelical Alliance. He speaks regularly at conferences and church events in the UK and the rest of the world and has a Master of Theology degree for his thesis on how churches grow. So, how did he get involved with an institute in Bengaluru, India? What did he write about for Western Morning News? What actually happens at a parliamentary prayer breakfast? How do churches grow in 2024? What hard times has he faced and how has he overcome them? And how does he find time to play golf? Which could be the most important question of all. So <laughs> with that, it gives me great pleasure today to talk to and listen to the wise words of Ian Coffey. Ian, thank you so much for joining us today. It's a great privilege. Where are we speaking to you from, sir? I'm in a little village in East Dorset called Older Holt. And it's midway between Bournemouth and Salisbury. Yeah, that's been my home for the last year. Oh, wow. Lovely. Well, I'm so glad you're able to join us. Let's find out a bit more about you, sir. That's all right. Five yep. important questions, or not so important questions. Fingers on the buzzers, no conferring. Question one, Ian. If you could invite anybody from history for an evening meal, alive or dead, so that you could ask them questions, who would it be? That would be Nelson Mandela, without uh, hesitation. And the reason, Martin, that he. Two things about him uh, fascinate me. One is his resilience Mm. in prison for 27 years. And I remember standing just outside his prison cell on Robin Island a few years ago and thinking how this man kept sane. I'm astonished. And the second thing is that when he came out after all those years of imprisonment, this gracious man who became president, which is a remarkable story, but there was no bile or bitterness and so many of the photographs of him show him laughing yeah and to me those are two amazing things resilience and the capacity to forgive and move on and i would just like to hear him tell me his story because i think he was relying on a source outside himself to, to produce that he does say he was a christian doesn't he yeah but it's like a lot of these things where people they claim, but you really need that kind of one-to-one conversation to find out. Yeah. And how many barriers he broke down just by wearing the South African rugby shirt. Yes, he did. In 1995, the World Cup. Of course, he should have worn an England shirt. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that would have been interesting to see how that would have gone down, wouldn't it? Indeed, yes. Great choice, thank you. And you're not the first person to have chosen Nelson either. Question two, who is your favourite biblical character or favourite biblical story or favourite parable, please, Ian? Well, no hesitation here. Uh, Barnabas, for many years, has been my biblical hero. And uh, I'm actually working at the moment on a manuscript, which is 
based around around his life. And the reason I choose Barnabas is he lived up to his nickname, son of encouragement. His real name was Joseph. People talk about Paul, this giant of the New Testament who wrote 13 of the letters that we have in our New Testament. But Barnabas was the friend who really made him under God. Mm-hmm. It was Barnabas, who was his senior friend, his partner in ministry that he looked up to. And um, for me, there's something very, very special about him uh, and his heart. And Luke sums it up in um, Acts when he says he was a good man, full of faith and full of the Holy Spirit. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. And uh, I can't think of a better epitaph than that. That's brilliant. You know, if we get into my time machine and bring him back to today, what kind of questions would you like to ask him? I'd like to ask him what it was like living with Paul, okay. Saul of Tarsus. Tom Wright has written a brilliant autobiography, not autobiography, biography <laughs> of Paul, because yeah. he, he primarily, uh, Tom Wright was a historian when he started out, mm. and he's written a biography on Paul, which is so readable. But he, he describes him, he says, if Paul was your best friend, you would describe him as high maintenance because often within a few minutes of meeting him, people wanted to kill him. (laughs) Before I read that, I used to think to myself, I wouldn't want to go on holiday with the Apostle Paul. It would be a nightmare. Yeah. But Barnabas managed it. I mean, they did fall out eventually, but it must have been quite difficult. Yeah. Not controlling him, but channeling him. That's that's the word. So I'd like to ask him about that. And I'd like to ask him about those early years of churches coming into being and how he and Paul would plant a church and pick a group of people and make them elders and then move on. I can't think of a more risky thing for anyone to do in all my life. Yeah. How did they discern that? And uh, how did they sort of negotiate the, the risk factor? I'm glad I asked that question because I, I struggle at times to think about what Paul must have been like. Yeah. You know, and high maintenance sounds brilliant. Yeah. A bit like me, I think, as I'm often described as that. <laughs> so maybe I'd understand more about him now. Thank you. Question three. Ian, if you were prime minister for the day yeah. and could change any law or impose a new law, what would it be, good sir? The, the law I would change is the sort of open door access on abortion. I, I do recognise that there are serious cases, uh, not only medically, but also in terms of the welfare of the mother, where I think it is legitimate. But what we've got now is just this wholesale slaughter of children in the womb. It concerns me. And I think it's something that as uh, a Christian, I believe it concerns God too, because these are are not inanimate organs that are being destroyed, but they are they are living human beings, potential living human beings. And that, for me, would be a, a very big, not politically correct, mm. not politically acceptable in many parts of the world, but just on a moral ground, that's what I would, would do. You're not the first person... I mean, if I had to get out a flow chart to see how many people have chosen this subject, it's sky high. Loads of people have. Question four, thank you. Outside of family events, what has been your most enjoyable day out, please, good sir? Oh, that that was a really hard question because I think family events always trump everything else. But I think that twice I met Mother Teresa. Did you? And I met her by accident. 
or or what I call I used to believe in uh, coincidence. Uh, I now call it God incidents. And uh, I happened to be in Calcutta. I went to um, the the centre that she ran, and on both occasions met her and just had this lovely conversation with her. Wow. Second time, she'd been very ill, seriously ill, near death. And when I said to her, can I pray for you? Her immediate response was, yes, please. And um, this frail, frail little lady, I put my arm around her. And to be honest, it was like putting your arm around a child. She was so small. Wow. And, you know, you think you could walk into... Windsor Castle, the White House, and you'd be struck by the pomp, the ceremony and the power. There was just something about this little lady, barefoot, working still among the uh, the sisters there in Calcutta, that just spoke to me about power, real power, mm. the power of, of love. And uh, it was a real privilege, both of those occasions, to meet her and their memorable days in my life. Wow. What was her English like? It was good. It, it was. Um, she was a, an Albanian. Yeah. There's a lovely quote where she says, by birth, I'm Albanian. By nationality, I'm Indian. But my heart belongs to Jesus. <laughs> Great quote. She spoke well. Uh, the first time I met her, I had my son, who was 10, uh, with me. And the thing I found fascinating was she was interested in what I was doing. She was interested that I was a pastor, but her focus was on my son, Chris. Wow. And the entire 10 minutes that we were talking, she was answering questions. She had her arms around him. She was stroking his face. Uh, she was blessing him. And I know he still feels to this day, he's in his 40s now, that was very significant. It reminded me of Jesus. Yeah. The disciples saying, don't bother with Jesus. Don't take your kids away. But his focus was on the child. And her focus was on the child in that conversation. Wow. I often say in the emails to all the, uh, the guests that are coming on that we often go off on a different tangent. <laughs> Here's one now by you talking about Mother Teresa. Because a lot of people don't realise that Mother Teresa came over in the late 60s and tried to start a convent here in Belfast, Northern Ireland. Wow. Yeah, that's for, <laughs> for, another, for another day. But you often read now, or I just happen to pick up whatever I'm reading, and there's like an inference that says, yes, but was Mother Teresa an actual Christian? And you've just nailed it <laughs> by what she said. Yeah, yeah. And I think, too, it's one of these things where we have often, and I'm as guilty as anyone else, a narrow definition of what is a Christian. Mm. I think that John Newton, the, the man who wrote Amazing Grace, said, when I get to heaven, there'll be three wonders I'll wonder at those who are there that I didn't think would be there. I wonder at those who are not there that I thought would be there. But the greatest wonder of all is that I'm there. Yeah. And I think as I've got older, I do believe what the Bible says about the gospel and, and you know, giving our lives to Jesus Christ and following him as disciples. But I realize that God works in amazing ways, in mysterious ways, and, and heaven will be a wonder. Yeah, yeah absolutely. When you met Mother Teresa for the second time then, does she remember you from the first visit? No, she must have had thousands of visitors going to see her. I did remind her, you know, that I'd met her once before when I visited. You you wouldn't believe how easy it is just to walk in off the street. Really? Yeah, absolutely. And uh, 
just walking off the street and say, hi, I'm a Christian. I'm really interested in what you are doing. God bless you and all that you're about. The second time, uh, one of the sisters said to me, would you like to see mother? She's uh, upstairs at the moment. And so she took me upstairs and her room was uh, a tiny little room. It had a bed, a chair, and that was it, really. And uh, it was along the corridor from where the chapel uh, was. Yeah. And uh, she said to me before I left that time, do you want to see the secret of what we do? Yes, please. And she took me along the, the road to the chapel. Yeah. And inside there was a whole bunch of young, very young nuns who were worshipping, singing, praying, kneeling down to pray. And she said, before we go out on the streets, or at least we have a team that are out on the streets right now, rescuing children and helping, we ha always have a team in here praying. So before you go out, you, you pray and you worship and you go out to tell, to share the love of God with people that we're going to be meeting on the streets. And it always struck me as a real balance there. Yeah. It wasn't just about social work, but it came out of hearts of love and devotion to Jesus. Wow. Adrian Plass, the reason I mention him is that I do, as you'll find at the very end, who your Christian hero is. And I went to interview Adrian down in a hotel in Stafford, about 30 miles south of uh, Stoke-on-Trent. And when we got to that question, he said, my Christian hero is Mother Teresa of Calcutta. <laughs> he then basically said, there are people who think that Mother Teresa wasn't a Christian. Well, if she wasn't a Christian, then we're all doomed. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know what he means. But uh, there was a real sense of God's presence around her. Wow. Thank you for that. Question five, then. What has been your most embarrassing moment? Oh, Martin, there are so many. When, when you, all kinds of ones came back to mind. I'm thinking, oh, dear, that was so painful. And I've got myself into lots of trouble over the years, not being careful in what I've said, causing offence unnecessarily. That's me. I think as I get older, I just look back and think, oh, dear. But I think the one that sprang to mind is slightly humorous. I'd been at a... I don't know if you've ever been to an event called a prayer concert. The idea of a prayer concert is you get together for a couple of hours mm -hmm. and um, you pray, but you pray in different ways. So they might say, get into a group of six and pray, get into a group of four and pray. And they give you different topics each time. Now we'll have a time of silent prayer where you just stand or kneel and pray. And it's a great way of meeting people and uh shuffling up who's in the congregation yes and it was a brilliant evening really good evening in a in a big church in brighton the reason i was there was at the end of the evening they'd asked me to sort of do a kind of a closing thought but i'd noticed uh as we'd come up to the last bit there was a, a lady there a young woman there who was obviously heavily pregnant and she'd been going in and out to the loo the church building was very cold it was winter and i thought oh bless her heart there's some commitment there to come and be part of this so at the end they said just turn around and as a final act pray with and for one other person and i turned around and this lady was there so me being pastoral and sensitive said when's the baby due <gasps> to which the answer was i had the baby six months ago and that's one of those occasions. Yeah. Oh, 
I want the ground to open and swallow me. And then had to try and pray sensitively for <laughs> I shot out to the car park as quickly as possible. Yeah. Now, I think that's the most powerful. So when I told my wife, she said, look, don't try and be clever and pastoral. Just say generally, how's your health? Yes. And yeah. if she wants to say, well, uh, I'm expecting a baby and it will be shortly. Just don't be too clever. So I've got myself into some real muddles with trying to be too pastorally careful. <laughs> yes. And I'm sure there are quite a few people going, yeah, I've had the same experience or, or whatever. Oh, brilliant. <laughs> Thank you for sharing that. Well, we've got a better understanding of you, and especially as you mentioned India already with Mother Teresa. So yeah. I mentioned that at the top end about an institute in Bengaluru. So how yes. did you get involved with them then, Ian, please? Well, when I was studying at theological college, London School of Theology, as it's now known, was called London Bible College in those days. I, from India, who came out, he uh, was a musician. He and his buddy were the kind of Simon and Garfunkel of their day in the 1960s. And Ken, Ken Nalikan, uh, became a Christian through being invited to a Youth for Christ event. And uh, very, very quickly, he started to use his musical gifts to sing. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Youth for Christ used him and he sang all over India and cut some records. Went off to Australia to uh, Melbourne Bible Institute for uh, a year or two. And then he was encouraged to come to the UK to do his degree. And then he went on to do his doctorate. And I got to know Ken a little bit, not brilliantly well. He wasn't in my immediate circle. But when I was invited with my good friend Dave Pope to go out to India in the early 1980s mm -hmm. with Operation Mobilisation, I, I said to Dave, look, I've got this guy who was at, I was at college with, Ken, He's in Bengaluru, or Bangalore as it was in those days. What about me contacting him? And Dave said, well, it's a long way to go to India. Why don't we see if we can help? So I, I contacted Ken, and uh, because he was himself a musician, was really keen to put on a concert with Dave. So I said, come down. And uh, we did. And that was the beginning of a really long and fruitful friendship because we saw what his heart was for India. He he started a Bible college in his two-room apartment. Wow. And while we were there, I'm thinking, this is nuts. You can't have a Bible college, a two-room apartment. The boys slept in the garage, which became the, the lecture room in the day. And the girls slept in the living room, which became the dining room in the day. And he had about, probably initially, about 14 students. But he took us to a field on the outskirts of Bengaluru, and he said, I have bought this field. And he stood there and said, and this is my vision. And he basically told us exactly what he wanted to do, where the library would be, where the chapel would be, and just painted this picture. And I'm thinking, well, mate, you know, you're a man of faith, because at the moment they're all in your little apartment. But over the years, that's exactly what happened. And what none of us knew is that particular road, the road that goes from Bangalore to Madras, Chennai, was going to become the Silicon Valley of India. And I was there a couple of weeks ago, and now it is absolutely jammed. They built over that little road that we used to drive along, overhead flyover. The metro is being built out there. They've been able to sell the college and rebuild elsewhere. And uh, the premises on which 
part of the college was based is now a secondary school for 2,000 secondary pupils wow. and run as a Christian school. And it's absolutely astonishing. So over the years, I've been backwards and forwards, seeing the vision grow. I did a sabbatical out there with my wife, Ruth, and our four small children in, in those days. And they went to school in India for four months, which was interesting, being white kids in an all-India school. Yeah. And that's been the link. And uh, just, as I say, a few weeks ago, I was there helping them in their special week on uh, training their students in long-term leadership, as we call it, mm -hmm. and uh, developing resilience. So that's it. For 40-something years, I've been involved in India, and boy, has that country changed. They've come in 40 years what it took the UK and, and West, Western European countries about 200 years to do. It's amazing. Why? Well, technology's changed around the world, so India's been able to get on the back of their discoveries in other countries. But the other thing is the Indian nature is entrepreneurship. Okay. They are so entrepreneurial. They want to look the whole time for different ways of doing things. And their, their culture is such that they, they applaud enterprise. And that is the thing that's just made them, I think, just the, the runaway nation in the world. And, and you'll probably know that Indians have been mathematicians for generations. So when something like computer software programming came along, they could eat that for breakfast. And so that's enabled them that to be on the crest of this wave of moving into a, a high-tech world. Wow. The other side of the coin is we saw a program a couple of years ago on Channel 4 with a, a motorbike daredevil bloke who goes all around the world. He decided to go to India, and it was like a two-parter. And he was invited to go up one of the skyscrapers they were building. And me and my mate were watching it, and we were having heebie-jeebies because the builders, they were wearing just flip-flops. Yeah, yeah. no hard hats no. and it was like the highest building and the, the only thing to stop them from falling off was like a red ticker tape yes. what yeah and, and the other thing too is they often use wood for scaffolding and it's just all tied together the thing we noticed when we were living out there we lived on the campus and they were building a new church my wife couldn't get over the fact that the hard labor was women in saris carrying bricks on their head mixing cement, walking up and down these ladders. And often, if the children weren't at school, they had children running around at the base. Yeah. And yet the guys, were the they were the stonemasons. They were the people putting it all together. Phenomenal. But they are just industrious with a capital I. Wow. What's Ken doing now, having seen this happen? He's in heaven. He died very unexpectedly about 18 months ago. He'd had a battle with cancer, which he'd really overcome by God's amazing intervention. He basically decided he didn't want to follow the uh, the prescribed route of the doctors and came off his treatment and uh, switched to homeopathy. And they could not believe it because the cancer basically shrunk and uh, he was enjoying great health. But then uh, he'd been preaching the church on a Sunday morning and preached a great message and then just had a heart attack and went into God's presence, which left a big, big hole. We attended the funeral online, which was an amazing Thanksgiving service. It was about two and a half hours in length. But one of the great things a few weeks ago was I could actually 
with my wife Ruth go to his graveside and uh, just spend a few moments there. Thank yeah. God for his life. Remarkable man, absolutely remarkable bloke. I love flying the flag for people like this. What was his surname again? Ken Nanakin, G-N-A-N-K-A-N, Nanakin. He was the most unimpressive person if if you met him yeah. socially at a party. But when you got talking to him, you suddenly realised this guy is a, a polymath. He was a brilliant musician, still used to play. As a hobby, he, his brother and his son and a few other mates used to play in five-star hotels on Saturday nights, you know, in the restaurant. He was a painter. We've got two or three of his canvases, beautiful canvases. He was a writer. He was a poet. He loved, he was anxious to find out more and more about anything. He, he developed a system of road building where plastic bags, which are a, are a curse in the developing world, mm-hmm. mixing them with different measures of tarmac, to produce greater resilience in roads in a hot climate where they melt. He looked at how in many of the, the slums, and one of the biggest issues is there are no toilets and people didn't want to know. And he developed a scheme with a group of Swiss engineers, water engineers, where they would put toilets in. And he convinced the people in the slum that if, if they gathered all the excrement, they could sell it as manure to farmers and as soon as people realized there was money in it they went for it which is what you said earlier on about entrepreneurial entrepreneurial always and uh, in the neighborhood where he lived where he grew up he was really irritated about all the litter that was around so yeah. hired a group of kids to get a little uniform and a bike and they went around collecting all the kind of recyclable stuff. And this was at the time when no one was recycling. Yeah. Took it out to the college campus and introduced a worm into this food recycling heap. And of course it produced lovely manure. And these little boys used to go around and sell back in the form of manure, the rubbish they collected. <laughs> in the wow. That just that ability. And when I said to him, well, well when did that happen? He said, I was just sitting in an airport one day thinking, what can I do? to make the environment better. There was depth to him. You saw a tenth above above the surface. Yes. Underneath, there was this huge resource, a great thinker and a great writer too. He was a Christian iceberg. Yes, a Christian iceberg. A A friend of mine came to visit college not long ago, and he said, God wants Christians with big bottoms. And that was the theme of his sermon. What he meant by that was, having depth, having something beneath the surface. And so often in our celebrity culture, it's all about what's on show above the surface. But he talked about, we don't need clever Christians. We need deep ones. And Ken was one of the deepest Christians I've ever met. Wow. I'd love to know what he must have thought about all those years ago in his little prayer room that you were <laughs> you're talking about with just a few people in two rooms praying. Yeah. yeah. And what happened at the end with what he'd been able to build, you know, for the glory of God with the university, well, sorry, the school now on top of it, but they've been able to sell the land and buy more stuff. Yeah. What do you think he'd say? Well, I think he was always a very humble man and he would always try and turn the spotlight away from himself. His son, who's uh, in his early 50s, has taken on the role from his dad. In fact, he, he handed it on to his son, Santosh, a couple of years before he died. I think he... 
probably had a bit of a premonition mm. about what was going to happen. But he always was very, well, his son's testimony is my dad never interfered. He sort of basically handed me the keys. He was there if, if I wanted his advice, but he was basically saying, look, you get on with it. You take it onto the next stage and was sort of focusing his attention on other things. And it takes a great deal of humility to be able to do that. One of the things I teach is on enabling and empowering leadership. Uh, I'm working on a book on that at the moment. Barnabas, we mentioned earlier, was an enabling leader. He, he empowered Saul of Tarsus. And my friend Ken in India was, without a doubt, an enabling leader. And there are people now not associated with his ministry, but still, you know, honour him, who've gone on to do other things across India, wow. pastoring churches, running clinics, running schools, because he poured stuff into them and then let them go and get on with it, which is a, a good thing. What's Christianity like over in India at the moment? It's tough. It's very, very tough. You've got a, a government that is not particularly friendly towards Christians or Muslims. To it is a Hindu party and quite a strict Hindu party. And depending on the state government, it can be very repressive. And there are instances of uh, churches being burnt down, Christians being attacked, Christians being killed particularly bad in, in the northernmost parts, in some of the states that sort of don't always hit the headlines. So it's a big challenge to be a Christian in India. It uh, regularly appears on Open Doors uh, watch list. They have this top 10, mm -hmm. well, it's more than 10, but the, the, you know, the top 10 of uh, repressive countries in the world, and, and India's often in there. There was somebody on a previous podcast who was talking about India and saying, there was a uh, chap he knew who went over to India to preach. He didn't tell me who it was. Please tell me it wasn't you. And there was a big open-air meeting. And the first thing he was going to talk about was the, the parable of the prodigal son. And as soon as he mentioned about the fatted calf, <laughs> that was it. He had to be taken off the stage and put on the next yeah. flight home. Yeah, it wouldn't work. Yeah, that wasn't you. Please tell me it wasn't you. No, it wasn't me. I've never done, uh, although there's been opportunities to, I've never done mass meetings in India because you've always got the risk for local Christians. They can be, you know, infiltrated and, and all kinds of things can happen. It doesn't take much to get a crowd in India, like Africa, African nations, you can draw a crowd. But it's about being able to work alongside people who are doing a good job there year in, year out, and enhancing their ministry and helping their ministry. Yeah. We just encourage those that are going to prayer meeting this week and thinking, well, there's only like three or four of us or something like that. You shared about Ken and look what happened as a result yeah. of you know being faithful. I interviewed a chap way back in the 1990s called Jack Hetzel from Texas. He then shared how he was over in South Korea in the late 1950s. Because he was a chaplain to the US Air Force, he was able to go out as well. And he would regularly go to a local prayer meeting. And he said, that, and in there was a 14-year-old kid. And he would often go into a, a little prayer cupboard on his own and pray. And he said, and that little kid turned out to be Yongi Cho, who, wow. for those who don't know, is a massive prayer warrior. Yeah. Yeah, and set yeah. up a church, more than one church, I would have thought, in Korea now. So it's amazing what happens in a, a prayer meeting. This guy, Ken, was in, in London when God gave him the vision of what he wanted him to do. He could have had his pick of some very cosy lectureships 
in the UK, in America, in Canada, which often is what happens. Yeah. God just put this huge burden for India on his heart. And he went back and just to start a Bible school in your own two bedroom department is nuts. Absolutely crazy. But God honored it. And uh, I'm reminded whenever I think of Ken that John Wimber, uh, the late John Wimber mm. used to say, New Testament faith is always spelled R-I-S-K. And that's what Ken did. He took a risk. But boy, there's so much that's come out of that to the glory of God. Oh, that's where the expression came from then, from John Wimber. Yeah. Or maybe he borrowed it from someone else. But yes, faith is spelled R-I-S-K. Absolutely. Well, do you know what? I feel as if I want to throw away <laughs> everything that I've said at the top end that we're going to talk about. But there was just one thing yeah. that I didn't mention that I think we can use as a, a springboard for the rest of the, this podcast, if that's all right, Ian. And I came up with a quote that you said. Oh. God often seems most distant when we are going through our hardest times, yet many have found that it is exactly at the moments of their greatest struggle when they have met God most closely. So please share more. Yes. I mean, Martin, I, I stand by it. I think it's true because I've seen it in the lives of people where – friends churches where i've served in the lives of individuals i mm. think in my own life in the last 18 months i was running up to retirement at the end of 2022 and i was diagnosed with prostate cancer and that just came like a bolt from the blue mm. and uh it's inoperable they said to me we can't do anything to take it away but what we can do is seek to manage it as best we can and so I went straight into a, a period of radiotherapy and now I'm on drug treatment, which will carry on till I go to heaven. So a lot of statements like that have come back to challenge me. And if you were to say to me, is God real? I would say yes, absolutely. Although there are times when I feel God is distant from me. Yeah. But it's those times when you press on through and you keep going, saying, I trust you, Lord, even when I can't understand you, I trust you. And for my wife, Ruth and I, we I think we found in the last couple of years, we God has been so amazing and faithful. We'd lived on site at college for 15 years. Mm -hmm. And when we were coming up to retirement, we had nowhere to live literally nowhere to live and god provided the house that i'm living in now miraculously provided it and the timing of it was absolutely spot on we moved in probably it was about eight weeks before my actual retirement date which is astonishing and just this morning i was just reading in my bible a little note that i'd written down probably about three years ago saying i don't know where we're going i don't know where we're going to live but i'm hanging on to this verse that talks about god being good and god supplying what we need when we need it yeah, yeah. and each year i'd added something to it this is our last christmas living on site at moorlands don't know where we're going to be this time next year then the christmas after that wow we're in this house and it's amazing it fits all of our needs and i think the it sounds very practical, but I've seen God show up for me in the practical things. A friend will suddenly contact me on a day when things aren't going very well and say, mm -hmm. how do you want my heart today? How's it going? 
and I've been able to say, well, it's a bit of a struggle today, not sleeping too well or finding the energy's gone. So uh, what I think I'm discovering is what I wrote in that quote that you just gave. It's true. And I'm reminded that some of the great verses in the Bible were written at times of adversity. Paul in Philippians in prison says, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. And I think that's the point that I'm at now. I, I said to my wife a few months ago, I said, I realised that this isn't a test of my faith. It's a test of my character. And that's the important thing that my character is, you know, I need to make sure that I'm being joyful in the Lord mm. and also being honest when days aren't finished to joyful and saying, you know, it's a bit tough at the moment, a bit of a struggle. Yeah, it's a journey that I'm on. I know that one day, although the consultant said to me, you will never be healed. I thought, well, actually, I will. <laughs> That's the truth. I will be healed because it's the ultimate healing. I take great encouragement from people who have never preached a sermon in their lives, but have preached a sermon in their lives by the way they've dealt with adversity, and especially when they've had a terminal illness. Sorry to hear that news. Thank you. Hopefully everybody will now want to pray for you. <laughs> when you say they're never going to be healed, with the drugs, does that mean that actually you can lead a normal life now as if you never had prostate cancer? Yes, because by God's grace, I, there's no, I don't have any pain or discomfort. The drug treatment that I'm on, the regime that I'm on, has some not very nice side effects, but they're livable with. They're not things that I can't cope with. Probably the biggest one for an activist like me is fatigue. Mm -hmm. So I get much more tired, much more quickly. I always used to think that sleep was a waste of time because if you're an activist, that's what you do. Yeah, yeah. I've had to sort of learn that actually sleep is a pretty good gift. And it's that it, during those times that the body repairs. But yeah, I, I'm just so grateful for the NHS and for the care that I'm, I am receiving and the fact that there's, uh, there's drugs that can keep something like that at bay. And that's the thing. So it's keeping it at bay. It's not going to get any worse, but it's not going to get any better. Yeah. But at some stage, the cancer, a bit like COVID, will disguise itself and pop up somewhere else. And that's when they come and say, right, okay, we'll, we'll try something else. So that's why every three months I'm blood tests and they look at my what they call their your PSA mm -hmm. which has come down had a lovely comment from the consultant about a year ago who said your PSA is now the lowest it can get you cannot sink any lower people have said that about me generally in life <laughs> perhaps we could use this as a springboard to encourage those who maybe not going for it at the moment or just being really really rubbish how and what would you say to them about yeah, I've got this, but I'm still a Christian and it doesn't affect my faith. What would you say? That's a very good question. In our library at college, we've got about 40,000 volumes of books. Wow. A lot of them now are electronic. So I, I don't know what the number would be if we added those on. But there's an intriguing book called Dog and Cat Theology. What a title. Yeah, it's brilliant. I'd like to read that. It's written by two theologians and it's not facetious in any way. But basically what they say at the beginning is if you own a dog, you feed it, you stroke it, you take it for walks, it will think that you are God. Yeah. If you have a cat, cats don't have owners. They have staff. 
So if you stroke a cat, feed a cat, it doesn't need walking, but it will think that it is God and you are there to deliver what it needs and when it needs it. And what they do is it's a very interesting um, premise they work from. They say, what is your view of God? What is your theology of God? If God is there to meet every need that you have, then you've got cat theology. If God is there and he, if he doesn't meet every need that you've got and answer every prayer when you want it, then, you know, you've got cat theology. But when you think of dog theology, it's I'm here to serve. I'm here to worship. Literally, some dogs do. Don't they? they worship their lives. Mm. And when I read that, I thought, you know, that's really interesting. How do I see God? Is he the king of the universe? Is he the sovereign one over all? Is he the Lord of history? Is he the one when John had the revelation and knew Jesus in the flesh, suddenly sees Jesus in all his glory, falls at his feet as though dead? Mm. Or is God sort of a, a nine foot man who's there to, you know, deliver everything you want? And uh, some of the songs that we sing, Jesus is my boyfriend kind of lyric. It really challenged me. It challenged me to say, what, what am I? C.H. Spurgeon, I'm a Baptist, so I, I have to quote Spurgeon. C.H. Spurgeon used to say, I'm constantly reminded that I am God's servant, not his solicitor. So I'm not there to advise God on what he should do, but I'm there to obey him and to, you know, take on board whatever it is he, he gives to me. And I think sometimes it's that shift yes. in our mindset that helps us to understand what's going on not only in our lives, but in the world around us. Yeah. I love reading biographies because that's how I, I tend to learn. You, I could come into your room with all the books behind you that I can see at the moment. And we talk about Barnabas, we talk about Paul. And you could say, oh, you need to read this, get a better understanding. You need to read it. And I'm going, no, nah, I'm sorry. <laughs> Whereas to read yeah. about how people lived it. Yes. I've just been intrigued by one book I'm reading. And part of the chapter is all about Lady Jane Grey, you know, who was queen for oh, nine yes. days. Yeah. I never knew she was a Christian. And when you see all the evidence, you know, all the letters that she was writing. Yes, yeah. It's a dog theology. It hasn't changed, you know, in the four or 500 years since Lady Jane Grey, maybe a bit more. That kind of theology hasn't changed. No. In these last couple of years, and what else has impressed you about, oh, maybe I got it wrong or maybe I got it right? Celebrity or culture. I mean, we, we don't need to go through it all, your listeners will know, as you and I know, of people who've been celebrity leaders who've fallen mm -hmm. with a bad crash. Consumer culture, where, you know, church is becoming more and more like TripAdvisor. We will score the meeting out of whatever for the quality of the worship, the quality of the sermon. I think we're high on expectation and low on commitment. Mm-hmm. I think we tend to be very quick to judge. And a lot of this is just the result of culture invading church. And I, I just think we need to get back to a more primitive Christianity. When you, you read in the New Testament, you know, that there were no needy people among them. Mm -hmm. That kind of approach that says Jesus in the everyday is what we need to see and not to be caught up with the kind of performance Christianity where the success of a meeting is how good were the strobe lights, how professional was the music, but much more along the lines of 
how many people are meeting Jesus? How many people are looking at our lives and say, I want some of that, whatever it is. I think of a friend of mine who's a pastor who conducted a funeral a month ago. It was a funeral for someone who'd been in professional football for a long time, of his wife. And uh, a number of uh, colleagues from the world of professional football were there. And uh, one of those said to the pastor at the end of the service, I'd love to chat to you sometime about what you were saying. Mm. And uh, they met up for coffee. And he said, I just, I've been on a search in my life for quite some time. And I've met a few folk who are Christian. And the lady who'd passed away was a, a believer. And he said, I just, I, I want to know, you know, in, in a world that I think is increasingly dark, is there some light? <laughs> And my friend just talked with him for over an hour or so and uh, explained what it was to become a follower of Jesus. And this uh, former pro said to him, well, I want to do that now. What's what's stopping me becoming a follower of Jesus right now? And uh, they just bowed their heads in Costa and he, he led him to Jesus. Wow. And to me, that's got the kind of authentic New Testament ring about it. Philip in the Ethiopian eunuch. Yeah. Stop me being baptized. And I think if we could get away from some of the cultural ideology that has invaded the church and get back to that hunger for seeing people meeting Jesus and knowing their lives being touched and changed by him, yeah. then it would be good. Philip, first person of Bible to use teletransportation. Yes. <laughs> you know, I'd like to talk to him about that. What was it like to be one minute having a cup of coffee sort of thing? Well, it wouldn't have been coffee. <laughs> down down Jerusalem Costa and the next second oh look there's an Ethiopian unit oh look where I am yeah. I know the, the podcast should be about you and about all the guests and I'm here just as a facilitator to ask questions but the thing I've learned most finally was revealed to me last week in my daily Bible study notes having struggled all my life having had to give up a job that first of all and foremost was what I wanted to do only to then be able to go back into radio I had to find that I had to give that up to look after a very sick wife who had cancer, became registered blind and all that sort of stuff. And I've been growling, mumbling, groaning, moaning ever since. And it was only last week where I realised that actually, when Jesus says, you know, are you prepared to give up your life? I'm thinking, yeah. well, I have. And I'm still here. Yeah. Even though I'm, I'm, yeah. I might be the biggest grumpy git you've ever met in your life. I'm still yeah. here and I, I've survived. What do you think? Yeah, well, I think it's the it's the old saying, if you want to make God laugh, tell him your plans. Yeah. And uh, I look back in my life and I'm so grateful for the opportunities God's given me. But I can truthfully say that m most of those things haven't been in my plans. They've been in God's plan. And I'll often say to students, the thing that God looks for more than anything else is obedience. That, that's it, full stop. And I think if we didn't wrestle about that and just simply said, Lord, I'll do what you want me to do. I'll fulfill what you want me to fulfill on planet Earth during the time I have here. I think we would enjoy life more, feel more fulfilled. We'd laugh a lot more. But it's when we're struggling against that obedience God, I want it to be like this. You know, I've always wanted to be married or to live here or to do this or to do that. That's what I said about Spurgeon. You know, I'm not God's solicitor. Yeah. I'm his servant. And that's where we 
we need to come down to the acceptance of this is what God's got for me while I'm on planet Earth. And I think also, too, if I'm honest, Martin, we always look at things from a human perspective, the here and now. I think if we could glimpse eternity, we'd recognise in the world to come, in life after life after death, Jesus talked about reward. He mm. talked about blessing. And I do believe in that. And uh, I think for those who've had to sacrifice a lot and miss out on the things that they've wanted to do, this life isn't all there is. And that gives me hope. Yes. You can play golf, hopefully, in heaven as well. That'd be nice. Yeah, although I've always said when I've heard that, does that mean there are no bunkers? <laughs> do I always get a birdie on every hole? I know I won't get cross. My wife struggles to think about golf in heaven, but I, I like to think of it like a celestial Augusta. The sun is shining and the flowers are beautiful. I remember Chris Cole and I talking about this, and he said, well, that's a difference. And he just made it up on the spur of the moment, I think. He said, that's the difference between heaven and hell. So what do you mean? He said, well, in hell, you've got golf courses. He said, but in heaven, you've got golf courses. But the difference is, in heaven, you've got holes and flags, something to aim for, whereas in hell... There are no holes on any of the greens, which then renders it useless. I thought, oh, that's a good point. That sounds like Chris. <laughs> <laughs> well, from golf in heaven, people could be getting very religious. They say, oh, no, that's how dare you say that sort of thing. But it's, it's nice, surely, to just paint a, a nice picture of something that you could attest to. And I, yes. I've often said that I'm actually reluctantly obedient. Yeah. So for those that are struggling at a moment on this whole concept of dying, going to heaven, or should I give up what I'm enjoying at the moment? You know, maybe you're a professional golfer earning millions of pounds a year, or maybe you're working at Costa earning not so many millions of pounds a year, but still struggling with the whole concept of either becoming a Christian or of being a Christian. Ian, what would you say to them? I, I was talking to a group of people uh, recently that, large number of whom were not yet Christians. I would say, without in any sense being irreverent, give God a go. Jesus said, ask, seek, knock. And often with my friends who are not yet Christians, I've said to them, look, have you ever seriously prayed and said to God, if you are real, I want to know. Mm -hmm. And no one need know that you've prayed that prayer. It's only a few seconds worth of breath. But I've always said to friends who struggled, they'd say, I'm an agnostic or I'm an atheist. Have you ever given God an opportunity? And, and to pray that prayer with a good heart, not defiantly or angrily, but just simply to say, God, if you're real, I want to know. Yeah. And I know a number of friends who've done that. And God has revealed himself in a way unique to that individual. It may not work for somebody else but it works with them yeah that that would be my gentle challenge growing up and going to school what did you want to be in life then ian that's a good question i think it switched as it does with young people growing up but i know when i left school i went to work for a firm of solicitors and uh i was just basically running around making tea and running yeah. errands and after a few years I thought I'd love to be a paralegal. That was the thing that I really wanted to do. And uh, I saw my future just working in the legal world. I worked for a London firm. We, we did a lot of matrimonial 
proceedings and custody applications with children. And I think probably that was the thing that gave me a bit of a pastoral heart. That's what I wanted to do. But then God stepped in and said, I've got something else in mind. And I struggled with it, if I'm honest, for a bit. But I'm glad that his plan is always better than mine. What way were you struggling? Well, my dad was a pastor. My brother was a pastor. So I'd seen it from the inside and I knew it wasn't a glamorous uh, role. I think I found the institution of church a bit claustrophobic. And so when I went to LST to study at my interview, they said, what do you think you'll do at the end of your course? And I said, I think I'll be an RE teacher because it seemed to me the logical way to reach young people would be to be an RE teacher who had faith. Yeah. And uh, within the first few months, I realized that wasn't what God had for me. And through a whole series of circumstances, just realized that God was calling me to be a preacher. Because I would say, first and foremost, that's what I am. Mm -hmm. And the first five years after college, I spent as an evangelist going into schools, colleges, universities, churches, preaching the good news. And then from there, I got a call to be an associate pastor in the church. So I I ended up there by a non-normal route. That says a lot about my stubbornness. But uh, I've I've enjoyed serving God. And, uh, yeah, I've got no regrets. Wow. Well, I would love to have a round of golf with you this side of heaven, if that's okay. That'd be good. Before we go on to the golf course in heaven. Yeah. And uh, we could actually ask God to show us how to use a one iron because there's an old joke, isn't there, that not even God can use a one iron, but we'd like to see him do it. So that would be brilliant. I'd like that very much, Martin. We will do that. That'd be great because I could listen to you for hours and learn from you. It's been phenomenal. Thank you so much. Ian, we've just come now in time for the last question, if that's all right. Yeah. Who is, Ian Coffey, your Christian hero, please? There's just so, so many different people that I've read about I think probably I'd go for William Carey. Okay. Uh, William Carey went out to India. He suffered incredible challenges, massive challenges. It's a phrase of his that isn't very well known, but he, he said, I can plod for God because he just said, I can do it. I can keep going. And he did. And in Serampur, where he worked uh, in the north of India, he not only preached the gospel, you know, his famous saying, expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. But he challenged some of the social issues of the day. Widow burning, for example, was a, a terrible thing that was happening. What was that? Well, women used to throw themselves on the funeral pyre of their husband. Uh, and sometimes they didn't do it voluntarily. They were thrown on, you know. And, and he just sort of began to preach the gospel and say, that isn't how God wants you to live you know you are valuable your value is not caught up in your husband because you are part of his property but you have a value of your own and i think of someone like that who just sort of went for it but i'm also torn because um i'm a great fan of the earl of shaftesbury eros in piccadilly circus yes dedicated to his memory who just spent the whole of his political life campaigning for the people on the margins And he did it because of his love for Jesus. And he did it with a real sense of urgency. So I think between those two, but the same thing is true in both of them. Resilience. I'm going to use every moment I've got on God's earth for his glory. 
I've never heard of William Carey before, so who is he? Where was he from, etc.? Northampton. He was a cobbler, uh, ran a little cobbler shop. And uh, it was when the, all the stories were coming back from the explorers around the world about what they'd found. And he, he had in his shop a world map. And it'd be interesting to see what it's like now compared to, you know, the kind of cartography we have. Yes. He had a world map and he used to pray while he was fixing people's shoes, their boots and their shoes. And he used to have this thirst for knowledge of where people did not yet know Jesus. And he went to a prayer meeting in Northampton and uh, he stood up and he said, what are we going to do about the people in the world who don't yet know Jesus? And he was told by the chairman to sit down. And he said, young man, when God wants to save these people in other parts of the world, he'll do it without your help and mine. And Kerry didn't sit down. <clears throat> he went off and uh, sailed to India, as you do. And he didn't have any backing. But he just said, I, I really believe God's called me to do it. He, he's often known as the father of modern missions wow. because of this sense of wanting to go out and make Jesus known. He ended up in India and uh, pioneered the work in Serampur for many years. What years are we talking about? We are talking about the 18th century. 1700s. Yeah. Before the internet, before anything else like that. Yeah. A friend of mine used to used to say he'd been in uh, Malawi. He'd gone out and, and served in Malawi for a couple of years after theological college. And the church had grown and a great history attached to it. And he said one day to one of the elders there, why Why has the church grown so much in Malawi? And, and this old boy said it was the missionaries who came. And uh, he said, was it their preaching and teaching? He said it was in part, but he said they all brought their coffins with them. Because that was the commitment. We're coming, yeah. but we're bringing our coffins because we're gonna we're gonna die here. This is what we're we're signing up for. Wow! You mentioned the statue of Eros. There was a gentleman I interviewed again about <clears throat> so many years ago, and he was working for the Shaftesbury Trust. I can't remember his name, but we went on a little walkabout, and he was explaining about the statue of Eros and the fact that it was dedicated to Lord Shaftesbury. And he said they had to a few years ago take it away to clean and repair. And when they put it back, people started to complain and they had to go and recite it. And the reason being is that the Statue of Eros was deliberately designed to fire his arrow down Shaftesbury Avenue. And when they replaced it on the plinth, it was facing down the wrong road. So there's a piece <laughs> of user's information. No, it's interesting. And actually it's the wrong, it's not Eros, it's his brother, who because Eros was quite trivial. But the brother was, whose name escapes me now, was much more the the man of love, self-sacrificial love. And, of course, that was what Shaftesbury had done. Yeah. But if you go to it, next time you're in London, you read the inscription all the way around the inside. You have to move a few hippies off to, to, to read it all. I did it a couple of years ago. It was opened by the prime minister of the day. And it says this is dedicated in honour of Lord Shaftesbury and all he did to help the poor and the disadvantaged. Apparently thousands of people turned out to honour him when he had his Thanksgiving service. And that was when Christians were much more at the centre of public life than they are now, sadly. Well, if you ever find tapes of my old shows when we did the hero slot, the piece of music we always used start off with saying, we're all the heroes now when we need them so desperately. Right line. This is just very, very topical. The, the whole podcast has been incredible. 
and we will be praying for you for the, your future years ahead. And uh, yeah, I'll even let you beat me at golf. How's that when we meet up? Great stuff. Thank you, Martin. Thank you so much, Ian. God bless.